Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. It was a sunny Tuesday afternoon, September 10th, 1969 when Henry Radcliffe Nellis, Cliff as everyone called him, found himself driving towards Muskoka, a popular cottage area well known as the summer playground for Toronto's wealthiest citizens. Cliff Nellis was familiar with the area as he and his new wife of just two months would often spend weekends at her family's summer home on Lake Joseph. On this particular drive north, Cliff's wife, Mary, wasn't with him. He didn't know where she was, but as he drove the familiar route, he prayed that he would be reunited with her soon. Cliff drove deeper and deeper into the heavily forested cottage area. The rugged landscape was blanketed in tall trees just beginning to shed their brilliant green for hues of gold and red. It would have been a beautiful fall drive under any different circumstances. But on this day, Cliff Nellis was desperate to get to a specific location. He had no time to take in the fall colors. He had been given clear instructions. He was to drive to the ruins of an old church near Foots Bay and leave the two suitcases there. Then, he was to drive south to a gas station payphone and wait for further instructions. Cliff did as he was told because 36 hours earlier, his wife, Mary Davis Nellis, had been kidnapped and he just wanted her back alive. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of one of the most brazen kidnappings in Canadian history. She was a beautiful young woman from one of the country's richest families, abducted by a gang of men in front of her husband and held for ransom. The kidnappers demanded a large sum of money and they knew her family could pay it. But what else did her abductors know? Police investigators quickly determined that the kidnappers seemed to know intimate details about Mary's exceptionally private family. 
whoever took Mary were not strangers to the Davis family dynasty. But who were they? And just how much was Mary's life worth to them? This is Enemy Within, the kidnapping of Mary Davis Nellis. She will be Mary Davis was born in 1943. She was the youngest daughter of Marshall Daniel Davis and Ruth Ringstad Davis. Her millionaire father was the director of 37 companies, along with his tycoon brother, Nelson Davis. The family lived a life of wealth and privilege, but they were notoriously private. In 1964, 21-year-old Mary Davis was returning from a European holiday by ship. While on the ship, she met Henry Radcliffe Nellis, known as Cliff to his friends, a handsome university graduate who was working in a stockbroker's firm. The two struck up a casual friendship and kept in touch. But over the next few years, they both dated other people, and Mary eventually got engaged to another man named Gary Adams. But the pretty blonde never forgot Cliff, and when Gary broke off their engagement twice, Mary finally moved on. In 1967, Mary and Cliff began dating. Two years later, they were married on July 12, 1969, and soon left on a whirlwind European honeymoon. When Mary and Cliff returned to Toronto, they moved to a converted schoolhouse in Claremont, just north of Pickering, Ontario, and approximately 40 kilometers from her parents' stately greystone mansion at 384 Old Young Street. Mary had fallen in love with the old red brick schoolhouse as soon as she saw it, and the newly married couple were excited about living in a rural community away from the hustle and bustle of the city. But just two months later, their dream home became the scene of a nightmare when three masked men burst into the converted schoolhouse and attacked the unsuspecting couple. It was September 7th, a Sunday evening. Mary and Cliff had just returned from a day in the city where they had attended a Toronto Argonauts football game. Not long after they got home, around midnight, there was a knock at the door. Assuming it was the neighbor, although the closest neighbor lived a half mile away, Cliff answered the door and was violently pushed into the house. The men wore nylon stockings over their faces and had leather gloves on. Two of them wrestled Cliff to the floor and sat on him while the other one grabbed Mary. And before they could even comprehend what was happening, Cliff and Mary were gagged and blindfolded. Then, realizing they had forgotten rope, the assailants used strips of cloth torn from one of Mary's nightgowns to tie the couple up 
Was this a robbery? What did they want? The disguised men said very little, but it wasn't long before their intentions were clear. They wanted Mary. Within minutes of bursting into their home, the masked men took Mary outside. But before leaving, one of the men whispered into Cliff's ear. Something about men from Montreal. Hit men that would kill if provoked. Cliff didn't know what it meant. Cliff felt helpless. He couldn't stop the men from taking Mary. Then he heard a car pull away. Mary was gone. Cliff struggled for two hours to free himself from the bindings around his wrists and ankles. The kidnappers had taken Mary, but they had left something behind. It was a four-page, neatly typed ransom note demanding $850,000 in cash. The letter gave specific instructions and said that Mary's father, Marshall Davis, would receive a phone call at his home with further instructions. The ransom note also went on to say that if the kidnapper's instructions were not followed as detailed, or if the police were called in, Mary would be killed. The note also said, You're being watched closely. Cliff knew there was only one person to call, and that was his father-in-law, Marshall Davis. He informed him that his daughter had just been abducted and the kidnappers were demanding a lot of money. As soon as he got off the phone, Cliff got in his car and headed back to Toronto. The family would have to act fast in order to keep Mary safe. The first phone call came on Monday night, 24 hours after Mary had been taken. Mary's father said he could not raise $850,000 on such short notice, but he could get them $200,000 in cash. Mary's uncle, Nelson Davis, was a director of the Imperial Bank of Commerce and had already agreed to supply the ransom. Marshall Davis just wanted his daughter back safely. Surprisingly, the unknown voice on the other end of the phone line agreed to the new ransom amount. Marshall Davis was told to go to a specific phone booth at the Bayview Shopping Plaza the next morning. He was to wait for another call at 9.30 a.m. When the call came through, the voice told him to look under the corner of the phone booth to find another note. The note told him to go to the Aurora Golf Club north of Toronto. There, he would find a list of instructions that would tell him where to deliver the ransom. Marshall Davis did everything he was told, and he planned to deliver the money as instructed. But he had disregarded one of the kidnappers' demands. The Davis family had called in the police right away, and Toronto detectives were carefully and quietly monitoring 
everything that was going on. By Tuesday afternoon, Cliff Nellis was driving towards Muskoka to deliver the $200,000 in ransom. The kidnappers wanted him to bring the money instead of Mary's father, and they wanted him to come alone. The final note at the golf club instructed him to drop two suitcases at an abandoned church near Foots Bay. Cliff followed the kidnappers' demands and drove towards the ransom drop location. But he wasn't alone. As he headed north into the Muskoka region, the Ontario Provincial Police were tracking him. A microphone and radio transmitter attached to his jacket was sending a signal to an unmarked police cruiser following him. As Cliff got closer to Foots Bay, he tested the microphone as the police had instructed him to do. But in his nervousness, he accidentally turned the transmitter off just before he got to the location. The police lost his signal and lost his location on the densely forested cottage road. If anything went wrong at the money drop, Cliff Nellis was on his own. When Cliff got to the isolated drop spot, he left the two suitcases by the old church and then quickly drove away. He had been instructed to go to another phone booth at a gas station an hour further south to wait for more instructions from the kidnappers. Once again, Cliff did as he was told and waited by the phone booth at the gas station. Was he being watched? The Davis family had held up their end of the deal and $200,000 in cash had been delivered. Now what? Would the kidnappers honor their part of this nightmare? Would they call and tell Cliff where Mary was? And would she still be alive? All he could do is wait and hope for the phone to ring. An hour went by with no phone call. Then, too. Cliff didn't know what to do. He didn't want to alert the police and potentially scare off the kidnappers. But what if they didn't call? What if they had all been duped? Then, finally, the phone rang. Cliff lunged towards it, grabbing it even before the second ring. It was the same voice, the heavily disguised male voice that had been making all the phone calls. The kidnapper told him to go back to the Foots Bay area and at a spot on a gravel road a few miles from the abandoned church, he would find Mary. Cliff raced back to the location. He spotted something lying at the side of the road. He pulled over and jumped out of his car. It was a sleeping bag. There was something in the bag, but he couldn't see any movement. He knelt down to open the bag, his heart pounding in his ears. It was Mary, bound and gagged, but she was alive and unharmed. 
39 hours after she had been kidnapped, Mary was finally safe. The couple drove to a local motel to rendezvous with Mary's father. Then, later that night, they all drove back to Toronto to meet with the police. The kidnappers had honored their part of the deal and had returned Mary unharmed. But the Davis family wanted them caught. As soon as the police were informed that Mary had been recovered, they sealed off the area around Foots Bay. They raced back to the abandoned church, but the suitcases with the money were already gone. A dozen specially trained police dogs were brought in to search the surrounding woods. The police hoped the kidnappers were still in the area. The dogs were only part of a much larger manhunt, one of the biggest ever undertaken. In a coordinated effort between the Toronto Police and the Ontario Provincial Police, all roads leading in and out of the Muskoka region were blocked. Cars were stopped at gunpoint and searched. The police believed they were looking for two cars, each with two men. Hundreds of officers descended on the cottage area, going door to door, looking for anything or anyone suspicious. The quiet resort area had never experienced anything like it, and local residents and weekend cottagers were on edge. What if the kidnappers were still in the area and felt trapped? Would they steal a boat or a car to get away? Or would they kidnap someone else? The whole ordeal was like something out of a bad movie or TV script. And in fact, the police were wondering if the kidnappers had actually copied their kidnapping plan from a recent episode of FBI, a popular police series in 1969. The whole thing just seemed too scripted and planned out to be real. But for Mary and her family, the ordeal had been very real and terrifying. As police searched for the kidnappers, news quickly spread that a Toronto millionaire's daughter had been abducted. Investigators had not made any announcements about the kidnapping until after Mary had been found safely. And even then, they were reluctant to give many details. But reporters were quick to compare Mary's ordeal to another famous Ontario kidnapping 35 years earlier. In the summer of 1934, 53-year-old brewery millionaire John Sackville Labatt was abducted near London, Ontario. A ransom note signed by someone calling himself Three-Fingered Abe demanded $150,000, worth about $3 million today. It was an exorbitant amount of money in the middle of the Great Depression, but the ransom was never paid. The kidnappers got cold feet and drove Labatt back to Toronto from their hideout in Bracebridge, Ontario. Two of the kidnappers surrendered and received long prison terms. 
while the third fled to the U.S. and died in a gangland slaying. John Labatt was never the same after his kidnapping and became a recluse for the rest of his life. The Davis family were not as famous as the Labatt family, but that was the way they preferred to live. Mary's uncle, Nelson Morgan Davis, was a self-made millionaire originally from Cleveland who had moved to Toronto in 1929. He had made his fortune buying undervalued companies during the Depression, and by 1951, he was living in the 29-room Graydon Hall Manor, one of the city's largest estates, popular today for elaborate weddings. As a child, Mary would often visit her uncle's estate to play with her cousins, Glenn and Elaine, who had both been adopted by Nelson Davis and his wife, Eloise. When asked about his niece's kidnapping the day after she was found, the family patriarch, Nelson Davis, initially refused to admit the whole ordeal had even occurred. Nelson Davis did not like publicity, and he had never given an interview to any newspaper, nor would he allow his picture to be taken. His business address was a post office box, and all of his phone numbers were unlisted. So when reporters showed up at his Toronto mansion, he told them, quote, I have made it a point to keep my name and my picture out of the papers all my life, and I have no intention of changing it now, end quote. He would not discuss his niece's kidnapping or the fact that he had supplied the $200,000 in ransom. And anxious newsmen didn't fare much better when they tried to contact Mary's father, Marshall Davis, who was equally as secretive as his brother. No comment was the consistent reply before hanging up the phone. But the media's glare was not going away anytime soon. The kidnapping of the elusive millionaire's daughter made front-page headlines across the country. It was the crime of the year, according to veteran Toronto Star news reporter Jocko Thomas. The press and the public couldn't get enough of the Davis family and how they had amassed millions while remaining virtually unknown. But, obviously, someone knew about their wealth and had just gotten away with $200,000, the largest ransom ever paid in Canadian history. Mary's kidnapping was a brazen attack and whoever was responsible had carefully and methodically planned out all of the details of the abduction and the ransom drop. But for investigators, it was precisely some of those details that caught their attention. As the events of Mary's kidnapping unfolded, the police quickly determined that whoever had orchestrated the scheme seemed to know a lot about the notoriously private Davis family. Who knew that newlyweds Mary and Cliff had just moved into a secluded rural property east of the city. Few of their friends had even visited. 
And how did the kidnappers know when they would be home alone? The police also noticed certain details in the four-page ransom note indicating a familiarity with Mary and her family. The note had been neatly typed with no spelling mistakes. They believed that whoever had written it was an intelligent, educated man used to mixing in high social circles. And the note seemed to indicate an intimate knowledge of the family's finances, as Cliff Nellis had been told to go to the senior Davis brothers, Mary's father and uncle, for the ransom money. Marshall and Nelson Davis certainly had the means, but that was something few people outside their inner circle knew about. But the strongest clue came from the phone calls that the kidnappers had made to Mary's father at his home. They had called him on a phone number that was unlisted and one that only a handful of people knew. Whoever had called that number knew the family. Mary had not been kidnapped by a stranger. It was someone much closer. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The day after Mary had been reunited with her family, Cliff Nellis spoke briefly with reporters outside Marshall Davis's mansion. He said his wife was emotionally distraught, but had not been physically harmed in any way. He then told the reporters that he couldn't and wouldn't answer any of their questions, as he did not want anything to interfere with the active police investigation. Toronto detectives were interviewing friends and family of Mary and Cliff Nellis, while the Ontario Provincial Police were still searching the Muskoka area, close to where Mary had been found. Then, three days after Mary had been rescued, police searching cottages around Foots Bay discovered a green plastic garbage bag hidden under an old wheelbarrow. Inside the bag was the $200,000 in cash that the kidnappers had taken. It appeared that some of the money was already gone. Not far from where they found the cash, the police later discovered where Mary had likely been held. Police dogs sniffed out a foam cushion, bandages, and binoculars buried near an empty cottage. Mary told the police that she had been put into a sleeping bag and was lying on a foam cushion in the back of a car when she had been abducted from her home. She was driven somewhere for approximately two hours and was then left in the car overnight. She was then held in a house, but every few hours she would be put back in the car and driven around again. Mary also told the police that one of her kidnappers had held her hand at different times during her terrifying ordeal. He would console her if she got upset and kept telling her everything would be all right. But she did not recognize his voice. Her abductors had given her orange juice, but no food. There wasn't much else Mary could tell the detectives. But what she did say had confirmed their suspicions. That the kidnappers were someone close to the victim. And it turned out the police were right. On Saturday, September 13th, four days after Mary Nellis had been rescued, the Toronto police announced several arrests in connection with her kidnapping. Six men had been charged, and one of them stood out in particular. His name was Gary Adams, and he was the 30-year-old former fiancé of Mary Davis. The police had followed a hunch that the kidnapping had been an inside job and whoever had abducted Mary was no stranger. Adams had known Mary and her family for over six years. The young couple had been engaged twice and set two wedding dates, but both times Gary had called it off. Also charged were four friends of Gary Adams. 29-year-old John Rogan, 23-year-old Peter Burns, 
27-year-old Michael Whiteside and 21-year-old Ralph Cameron. The sixth suspect charged was also a friend of Gary Adams, but his arrest was even more shocking. His name was Richard Yowert, and he was a first-class constable with the Toronto police. Four of the suspects had been arrested in Toronto, but Gary Adams and Ralph Cameron had flown to Montreal to party. The police arrested them at the airport when they returned. The arrest of the six suspects, including Mary's ex-fiancé, was headline news. These weren't hardened criminals. They were all young, well-educated men from good homes. The newspapers stated that all of the men were single, and five of the six men lived in the same luxury apartment building on Dunfield Avenue in Toronto. Gary Adams, Peter Burns, and Mike Whiteside lived together in the penthouse on the 29th floor, while John Rogan and Ralph Cameron lived on another floor. According to neighbors, the men were all well-liked and popular with some of the single ladies who also lived in the apartment building. News of Gary Adams' arrest was a complete shock to Mary Nellis and the rest of her family. Gary had been accepted by the reclusive Davis clan and had spent a great deal of time with them. It was obvious to the police that he had been the mastermind behind the kidnapping. On the day after the arrests, newspaper reporters who had been camped out across the street from Marshall Davis's stone mansion on Old Young Street finally got what they were hoping for. Mary Davis Nellis appeared with her husband outside her father's home to speak briefly with the press. The couple said that the arrest of Gary Adams and the others had come as quite a surprise to the whole family, and knowing that Gary was behind the kidnapping was a bitter pill to swallow. Nervous and trembling, Mary refused to answer any of the reporter's questions, but said she was concerned for Gary's family. Cliff said they were looking forward to returning to their home in Claremont, now that all of the suspects were in jail. On Tuesday, September 16th, five of the six men accused of kidnapping Mary Nellis appeared in a Whitby, Ontario court, since that was the municipality where the kidnapping had occurred. Police Constable Richard Yowert was absent as he had been charged separately. The five well-dressed men sat quietly as their hastily appointed lawyers argued for their release. One of the defense lawyers had a simple explanation regarding the entire event. It was a prank that got out of hand, he said. The judge disagreed, and bail was set at $50,000 each. Distraught parents of each of the accused requested the bail be reduced, but the judge held firm. The young men, none of whom had ever broken the law before, would remain in prison. Two months later, 
the same five men appeared in a packed courtroom while Chief Inspector Jack Kay of the Ontario Provincial Police outlined the role of all six men in the kidnapping. Inspector Kay stated that Gary Adams, Mary's ex-fiancé, was the admitted ringleader of the plot. The inspector revealed that Adams had recruited all of the men in July, two months before the actual kidnapping. The group held meetings where intricate plans were laid out, including a series of dry runs. Then, on September 7th, three of the men, including Gary Adams, attended the same CFL football game that Mary and Cliff were at. The men watched the couple through binoculars. After the game, the six men met in their Toronto penthouse and typed out the four-page ransom note and three direction notes on how the ransom should be paid. Then three of the men drove to Mary and Cliff's house in Claremont and attacked the couple. The men then drove Mary bound and gagged approximately 180 kilometers north to the Muskoka region, where she was held before being released 39 hours later. In their written confessions, the men stated that two of them, Burns and Cameron, were hiding in the woods and watched Cliff Nellis deliver the two briefcases full of money at the designated drop location near Foots Bay. Then, they took the money back to a rented cottage where they were holding Mary. They buried the money in a green plastic bag under a wheelbarrow and planned to return for it at a later date. And despite one of the most intensive manhunts in Ontario's history, the six men managed to slip through the police roadblocks and drive back to Toronto. There, they celebrated believing they had just pulled off the perfect crime. Gary Adams and Ralph Cameron then decided to take a trip to Montreal to celebrate their newly acquired riches. But just three days later, they were all arrested. So how did the police quickly link the six young bachelors to Mary's kidnapping? The Davis family had secretly contacted the police on the night of Mary's kidnapping, despite the warning that Mary would be killed if they did so. But they knew they had to take the risk. Afraid his phone might be tapped by the kidnappers, Marshall Davis used Sam Shevsky, an old family friend, as a go-between to relay the kidnappers' instructions to the police and to get advice back from them. As Mr. Davis was sent to various locations and phone booths by the kidnappers, the information was being fed back to the police by Mr. Shevsky. It was through these phone calls and the ransom letter that the police determined that Mary's abductors had intimate knowledge of the Davis family dynasty and their wealth. Through a process of elimination, the police tracked down all known acquaintances of Mary and Cliff. The couple had only been married for two months when the kidnapping occurred, 
and they had just moved into their secluded, converted schoolhouse in Claremont. Only a handful of their friends knew their new address. It didn't take long for the police to zero in on Mary's ex-fiancé. According to mutual associates, he had just quit his job at a printing company and had bragged about coming into some money. All five men were found guilty of kidnapping and conspiracy to kidnap. The maximum sentence for kidnapping was life imprisonment. In sentencing the men, the judge remarked that the brazen abduction was a serious crime that had been thoroughly planned and deliberately carried out. All five men had conspired together, and not one of them had ever suggested abandoning the plan. But then the judge added that because none of the men had any prior criminal convictions, and because Mary had not been physically harmed, they would receive lighter sentences. In addition, all five had pleaded guilty and had cooperated with the police after their arrests. In court, Gary Adams' lawyer pleaded for the judge to not ruin his client's chances of one day being able to return to society. But the judge was undeterred and gave Gary Adams the harshest sentence of 15 years in a federal penitentiary. For their part in the kidnapping ordeal, the four other men received sentences from 10 to 12 years each. Three months later, in February 1970, former police constable Richard Yowert went on trial for kidnapping. Yowert had resigned from the Toronto Police Force shortly after being arrested and charged the previous September. He was the only kidnapper who had pleaded not guilty. Crown attorney Bruce Affleck outlined his case at the beginning of the trial, stating that Richard Yoward had played an active role in the kidnapping. He was the person who had gone into the Nellis home and attacked Cliff Nellis. And it was Yoward who told Nellis that two men from Montreal had been given instructions to kill all members of the Nellis family if the ransom directions were not followed. Crown Attorney Affleck then read out the ransom note to the 12-man jury. The note was well-written and detailed and specified four times that Mary would be killed if the police or press were notified. This is not a threat. It is a positive fact, the note said. While she had not testified at the previous trial of her former fiancé and the four other kidnappers, Mary Davis Nellis appeared as the star witness at the trial of the former cop. Visibly nervous on the stand, Mary testified that while her abductors had treated her well under the circumstances, she began to fear for her life when one of them told her that the group didn't feel they were getting enough ransom money. They had originally asked for $850,000, but had settled for only $200,000. 
I thought there was a split in the gang, she said. I was afraid I was going to be killed. Mary went on to say that she was unable to identify her captors because she was kept blindfolded the entire time. The only injuries she sustained were bruised wrists from being tied up and a swollen nose from the tight blindfold. The next witness to testify was Gary Adams, Mary's ex-fiancé, who was already serving 15 years for his part in the kidnapping. The admitted ringleader said that Richard Yoward had once driven to his office in his police cruiser and full uniform to discuss the kidnapping plot. Yowert's role was to manage Mary, and he was offered $150,000 of the original $850,000 ransom to go along with the plan. Adams was to receive $400,000. Finally, testifying in his own defense, Yowert told the court that yes, he had gone along with the kidnapping plan, but Gary Adams had given him the impression that Mary was in on her own abduction. Adams told him that Mary had actually helped devise the plan to extort money from her wealthy family. Yowert believed what Adams was telling him due to the fact that Adams knew so much about Mary and where she would be on that particular weekend. Adams seemed to know exactly when she and her husband would return to their secluded property in Claremont. Yowert described Adams as a very domineering and persuasive person who could easily manipulate people. The 26-year-old former cop also claimed that he had tried to stop the kidnapping, but the others were intent on going through with it. And while he had participated in attacking Mary and Cliff in their home, he had intentionally not smashed their phone as planned so Cliff Nellis could call the police as soon as they left. Yowert also testified that he felt sick about the whole ordeal and knew it was only a matter of time before they were all caught. He was well aware of the fact that as a policeman, he had sworn an oath to serve and protect, and he had failed both as a policeman and as a man. Life in a federal penitentiary for an ex-policeman is not pleasant, he added. But the jury had little sympathy for the ex-cop, and on February 12, 1970, Richard Yowert was found guilty of kidnapping. In delivering his sentence, the judge said he did not believe Yowert's story that he had tried to stop the abduction. You had many opportunities to get out or just not show up, but you didn't, said the judge. Yowert was sentenced to 12 years in prison for his part in the kidnapping of Mary Davis Nellis. For the Davis family, Mary's kidnapping had been a terrifying event. Mary's husband, Cliff, later admitted that he wasn't sure if he would ever see his wife again after she was taken from their home. 
and the family had been forced to make a difficult decision. By contacting the police, they could have put Mary's life in further peril. And then, to discover that they had been betrayed by someone close to them, Mary's ex-fiancé, Gary Adams, was another difficult blow to the very private family. And their ordeal continued when less than two years after the kidnapping, the parole board granted early release to most of her captors. While the six convicted men had received sentences ranging from 10 to 15 years, and normally one-third of a sentence is served before parole eligibility, two had been released after only serving 20 months. Eventually, all of them would be paroled early. Richard Yowert, the disgraced former police officer, would serve 24 months of his 12-year sentence, and Gary Adams, the ringleader, would serve only three years of his 15-year prison term. When challenged about the early releases, the National Parole Board defended its decision to give all of the kidnappers early parole by saying that they were convinced none of the men would do it again. The fact that they all came from middle-class families, would have jobs upon their release, and had friends and family support also played into the board's decision. And the chair of the board went on to tell a Senate inquiry that he felt the kidnapping was, quote, a stupid prank in which the victim was never in any danger, end quote. Sadly, the victim of the so-called stupid prank was never asked how she felt about her abductor's early parole. Newlyweds Mary Davis and Cliff Nellis survived one of the scariest nightmares any couple could imagine. But Mary's kidnapping only strengthened their bond, and they went on to build a beautiful life together. They were married for almost 50 years until Cliff's passing in December of 2018. The wealthy Davis family had always sought privacy. And after Mary was hurt by someone close, the family became even more reclusive. But tragically, Mary would not be the last member of the Davis family betrayed by someone in their inner circle. On the next episode of Enemy Within, 38 years after Mary's kidnapping, another member of her family is targeted. Once again, someone is after money from the Davis family fortune. But this time, murder is in the plan. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. 
Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.